Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 4th, 2023, early January of every year, always reflects promise. We always want to make the world a better place at the beginning of the year. Next week, I'm going to my regular DLD conference in Munich, probably the best tech conference of the year in Europe or otherwise. Um, and the, uh, the theme of the event this year is beyond now, getting beyond now, which of course implies how do we make the world a better place. DLD is a kind of warm up for Davos. After DLD, everyone goes off to Davos, uh, where all the elites meet to figure out how to change the world. The focus on uh, of, uh, of Davos year of this year is cooperation in a fragmented world. And as always at Davos, there's a lot of focus with the World Economic Forum on climate action and sustainability, how to get to net zero, how to deal with our climate crisis. One person who's done a lot of thinking about net zero uh, is my guest today. She's the co-author of Supercharge Me, a um, really interesting new book on how to get, essentially, to borrow some language from DLD, beyond now. And uh, Corinne Sawyers is joining us uh, from North London, from Wilsdon. Corinne, uh, Happy New Year. And to you. Is it going to be a Happy New Year, Corinne, at least from the net zero point of view? What are you hoping for? I'm not sure if you're going to DLD or Davos, you seem to be the kind of person who might at least be invited. Um, I'm actually not, but uh, but um, I'll be following them closely from afar. But I'm, you know, I'm a relentless optimist um, on this topic, and to be honest, that was a big part of why we wrote the book. Um, you know, we really felt the prevailing narrative about how to address climate change and what it's going to take to fully decarbonize our economy over the next few decades was wrong. Um, and that the actual story is, is much more optimistic and promising, both in terms of what we can achieve and what it means for society uh, and the economy. So, you know, we, we thought it was wrong because the prevailing narrative has been, and this is evolving, but it has been addressing this involves taxes, cost to the nation's balance sheet, cost to the household, sacrifices at the individual household level. I have to change my behavior to, to kind of fall in line with responsible climate action. Uh, and one of the pieces we clarify in the book is actually 70% of the emissions we need to reduce to get to net zero can be achieved through electrification of buildings, transport, manufacturing, and running that electricity off renewable energy. None of that implies that narrative of sacrifice or cost. That's effectively uh, a um, uh, an industrial revolution. Which right. is Corinne, it's what we all want to hear, of course. It's a classic American thing that we can make the world a better place and not have to pay for it and not suffer, maybe even benefit. Some people might say, well, you would say that you're part of the the capitalist infrastructure, you're a principal yeah. at a, a group yeah, called yeah, yeah. KKR, which uh, manages large amounts of money. Uh, you're part yeah. of the, the Davos elite. Um, 
there are people we've had on the show who basically argue that capitalism, or at least 21st century capitalism, is incompatible with saving the planet. Tim Jackson, for example, his book yeah. Post-Growth says that. Uh, and Jason Hickel is probably the most outspoken, unarticulate uh, person who argues that the planet needs saving from capitalism, not people, as he told me when he appeared on the show a couple of years ago. How, how would you respond to people like Hickel and Jackson? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very good question. And, you know, I'm a, a fan of their work. It's an important, an important voice in this debate. And also Kate Rayworth, who's kind of similarly explores very yeah, thoughtfully, you know, yeah, the constraints, the constraints of our capitalist structure, um, well beyond climate, but of course kind of biodiversity and all the planetary boundaries. It's a very important contribution. My, my, you know, and I would say this, but my view on it is we operate in a capitalist society and uh, we're not going to create change by making people's lives harder and making products worse. That is not how our economy is going to be transformed. So they're an important voice, but I think they lack a realism. And I don't think capitalism is ever, is ever going to be perfect. And we need to have radical, radical te technological innovation and also policy intervention, massive policy intervention to reduce the extraordinary environmental and social woes of our capitalist structure. But we're not going to completely move away from that economic system. Those are the boundaries within which we are working. We are saying in the book, you know, which some people maybe find a bit cynical, but um, it is what, what we, how we believe system change is delivered, which is uh, people only change their behavior if the alternative is cheaper, better, or their friends are doing it, you know, if social norms change. Um, businesses only change behavior if they make more money or if it's illegal. And politicians only change behavior to get or stay elected. And those are just some of the realities of, of sort of society and how so, we are. So, so, and I, I want to get to the details, Corinne, of what you're saying, but are you suggesting that we never do anything which might be against our own short-term interest? If we really no. believe, for example, that the only way to save the environment is giving up driving or giving up getting on aeroplanes or giving up meat. We're not capable of doing that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not so simplistic as to say we are not capable of altruism and thinking long term. And there's a whole very important movement around developing our capacity for long term thinking, intergenerational thinking. Um, and we have to do that. We will have to make uh, do our bit in this. My challenge to the narrative is that's not the main lever for change. The main lever for change is technological innovation and rapid capital allocation to, to kind of um, to um, uh, build out this new low carbon economy and infrastructure. Um, so I, we have a capacity for it. We absolutely have to keep nurturing that capacity, not least because climate is just one ill. Of, of our capitalist system as is. There's a huge amount of human rights abuses in most value chains, you know, extraordinary biodiversity loss and species extinctions. And all of those are actually, in some ways, more complicated and challenging topics to address than climate. There's different metrics. Climate Although they're, they're sort of connected. Um, Corinne, we've done a number of shows on whether or not we have the technologies to confront the climate crisis. Bruce Usher, Columbia University scholar, was on the show yes. 
in October of this year. And he, I think he like, he is like you, he's an optimist. He believes now that the technologies exist. Talk a little bit about which technologies we need and whether we're there yet in terms of these technologies. Yeah, yeah. So, so sort of let me go back to the framework we out in the book of the, the three types of problems we need to solve to get to net zero. And there's three types we identify. One we call simple maths, which is where we have technologies and they are at kind of cost parity. And that is, um, that is renewable energy generation, wind, solar, hydro, um, and most of the technology needed to electrify existing industries. We've got a second category, which we call mini-musks. And that's where we don't have the technologies or they're in the earlier stages and need kind of much more capital allocated to them. We, yeah, and we need, call those mini-musks because we need more musk-like uh, you know, uh, crazy entrepreneurs who are really... Some people might be, uh, Corinne, recoiling. Some people, particularly out here, might say one Elon Musk is enough. It's enough. That's why we said mini Musks, you know, the sort of smaller version. Uh, maybe and then the maybe final... we should call them uh, net zero Musks. <laughs> or exactly. green Musks. And, you know, jokes aside, he, you know, he, the, he has done an extraordinary service. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I mean, I'm not necessarily putting myself in that camp. I don't want yeah. to turn this into a. He, he an Elon brought Musk forward the transition of the auto industry by you know a decade or two, and that the consequences of that are enormous, and not least the kind of um, the uh, technological innovation which will spill over into other industries, such as batteries, which will which I will get onto, and and then just finally the third category is is herding sheep, um, which is around behaviour change, so eating less meat, flying less. And what we identify is that 70% is in this first category. And um, th that's good news. kind of what we need to do is in the first category. Yeah, and what we argue is we have to do that quicker than we are current. We have to roll out electrification of those industries and running all of our grids off renewable energy much faster than we're currently doing it because we need to buy time for those harder problems such as cement, where we don't really have a low carbon cement available sustainable aviation fuel you've got some slightly lower carbon versions but nothing ideal you know i'm sure there'll be innovation in livestock um, to make it much more methane intensive so we have to buy time for those innovations and those technologies we have we need to allocate much more capital and roll them out you know one thing what i get asked a lot about is is the intermittency challenge um of there's a huge amount of debate of, you know, well, can we get to 70% of a grid on renewables or 100%? And, you know, I think that it, it misses the point in, in several ways. One is, as a share of total energy production globally, we're at about 14% renewables. So let's just get to 70%. That's still, that's still pretty good. Um, and there was a very interesting... Doyne Farmer is an Oxford economist uh, paper recently about essentially suggesting we've underestimated consistently the pace of technological improvement and declining cost of renewable technologies, including batteries, that they actually operate at something like Moore's law. And we can expect that trend to continue, secular decline in price. Um, and that is that is critical because our current economy is largely run off oil and gas, which don't have those, those, they are not technologies. There's just stuff we pull out the ground. They do not have those qualities. So our current economy is run off actually a very costly energy source and hugely volatile in price. Those two characteristics have 
quite negative effects for kind of productivity right. in the global so, economy. So Karen, what, what is the problem here? Um, I, I know you're, you're a big fan of The Economist. Uh, they had an interesting piece that you connected with, have economists led the world's environmental policies astray? <laughs> is the problem is that we're thinking about these issues or we're trying to think about these issues as economists when we should be thinking about them politically? Or is the problem that economists simply don't get it or politicians don't get it or policymakers don't get it? Yeah, it's sort of a bit of all of the above. So um, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, I'm an economist myself. There's nothing wrong with economics, but there has been a tendency, uh, what we call it, for economists to kind of focus on the wrong chapter of the textbook and focus on externalities. And as you say, we suggest that that's poor politics. Um, uh, a Canadian, a Canadian climate academic called uh, Mark Jackowitz covers this very well about how much political energy can be expended trying to get carbon taxes through. When actually, to make a carbon tax effective, you have to have such a high rate, and even at a singular rate across sectors, that's not going to achieve what you want because what you need to do is focus on sector by sector relative price. So there's something missing about about winning hearts and minds, which as I related to earlier, we have to do, we operate in political democracies, politicians need to get reelected. So this is a positive story, but we also need to make it a positive story. And something occurred to me today, which I haven't road tested yet, this is the first time, which is in an odd way, maybe the US has benefited from its political economy. Um, so let me explain why. The US is a, is a kind of political economy where taxes are, are are much more kind of nail in the coffin. You know, I've heard people say, you know, a carbon tax would never even have a chance in Washington compared to, say, Europe or Canada. So they haven't spent much time trying to push that through and actually have, in some ways, been world leaders in the kind of policy that works, both through the Obama Recovery Act in, in 09, 10, and now in the IRA under Biden. And those policies have involved using the state's balance sheet, using leverage to reduce the cost of capital in the private sector, to make it cheaper for these various economies to invest in new technologies. And in the, the Recovery Act, um, the kind of loan guarantees consistently actually delivered returns for the government. So there's an interesting way in which the, the kind of there's a lot of hand wringing about the US and it leaving the Paris Accord and rejoining and but oddly, they are leaders in certain respects of how to do climate policy. Um, yeah, so is it, to simplify, and it's a really interesting debate, Corinne, we had um, uh, Bob uh, Keefe on the show who runs a, a non-profit group, uh, an alliance of, of private companies who believes that American capitalism can work. Are you suggesting that the American model for, for dealing with net zero um with dealing with climate change is ultimately a better one a market-based one as opposed to the european government-centric one listen i i don't think i'd be so simplistic as to but you I, seem I think, to be tiptoeing there you um I think and, this is and i'm not being critical i mean using obama and the biden models yeah. of stimulating innovation of of investing in in, in mini musks yeah I, I think they're different strengths. And what I would say is to date, and I, you know, I'm not actually sh sure why if this cultural, but to date, Europe has been more of a leader in climate technologies, you know, leader in green steel, for example, you know, which you're not really seeing in the US or other regions. Um, 
but you're right in this if as we've designed defined the problem it's mobilization of capital that's how we've defined it in the book we need to mobilize this capital to get that 70 percent and it seems u.s policy is better at doing that you know a lot of anxiety in but, but you, you also you connect with a uh, an economist piece saying that capital will be scarcer in the 2020s i mean there's a crisis seems to be an economic investment crisis at the moment so that shouldn't make us particularly cheerful, should it? I mean, if, if the answer is capital investment and the story of the 2020s is capital scarcity, then how are we going to deal with it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, a few a few observations on that. Um, I'm not sure I fully agree with the capital scarcity thesis anyway for the 2020s. Um, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing about the obviously interest rates shifting and what that can do for capital allocation. Capital is more expensive by definition, but, you know, government yields are still... The investing in these new sectors, low carbon, et cetera, about traditionally they've been used to prop up um, whereas here they make a return traditional investment No, it's so this kind of the about that's what really flows with an area. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're breaking up a little bit, Corinne. Um, are you able? Uh, I'm concerned that some of the audio. Let's end with your notion of green electricity. Electrification. Yeah. Um, I know you're a big fan of green electrification. What does that involve and what needs to happen to get yeah. to green electrification? Hi, sorry. Where did you lose me? Uh, I, I think we're good now. If, if you could just talk a little bit about green electrification to end this conversation, where do we need to go? So the... Um, you know, really, I would like to see Europe replicating the Inflation Reduction Act in terms of significant subsidies and tax breaks to allocate capital to um, these sectors. Um, and what I would say is we should see green energy and green electricity as like the semiconductors of the last two decades. Once we've allocated that capital, they're going to be much, much cheaper than our historical electricity prices, electricity prices, which will deliver much greater productivity to the economy. Um, so there's a very strong investment case for governments to invest in these sectors and to crowd in more, more private capital. Let's end, uh, Corinne, with this issue of rationality. You, you seem to be presenting the world very much in economically rational terms. The co-author mm. of your book is Eric Lonergan, 
Mm. Um, he was actually on the show a couple of years ago. He's the co-author mm. of another book, Angrynomics. Um, he authored it with Mark Blythe, an academic, mm -hmm. uh, East Coast academic. Um, in Angrynomics, they suggest, and again, I don't think this is particularly surprising or controversial, that people don't think like economists and our political system is dominated by anger and what they call angrynomics. So for all the, the rational arguments you make about green electrification and the positive nature of, of, of new technology and mini musks and so on, most people don't think in that way. So how are you going to transform angrynomics into rational, reasonable thinking about the yeah. environment in a political context? Because that seems to me essential if yeah. we're to borrow some language from DLD, going to get beyond now. Yeah, no, fully agree. And that's where we come back to our um, kind of what really delivers behavior change. At the end of the day, most people want, you know, their children's lives to be better than their lives. It, it's sort of as simple as that. Um, and they need to feel that the low carbon option, option is more attractive, better, cheaper. It's as simple as that. We've got to make the green option cheaper or better and politically viable. We can't be trying to sell something, you know, politically that that um, is a, a real cost or sacrifice to the household. And we also don't believe we need to. So having said that, you know, we're often asked what can the individual do? And there's a lot of evidence that we as individuals have huge power to kind of mobilize our anger many people myself included feel a lot of anger about various aspects of the climate crisis you know we have been foiled and lobbied and delayed um by all sorts of vested interests for decades that we can actually mobilize that anger for political change um you know and we believe the most important thing that people should do actually is go out and be climate activists um there's some great harvard work about it takes 3.5% of the population to kind of change the societal view um, on, on kind of what a right policy is or what the right social norm should be. Um, we talk about that a lot in the book. 